Hey, podcast listeners, Joshua Braff here. Today on the show, we have Dr. Michelle Ross, a neuroscientist and health coach who utilized cannabis to treat her own fibromyalgia. Also, we have the continuation of our interview with Gooey Rabinsky, author and activist. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the Cannabis Corner. I am your host, Joshua Braff, and I'm here with my partner, farmer Adam Teitelbaum. Today, we have Dr. Michelle Ross, who is founder, executive director, and president of the Denver-based nonprofit Impact Network. As a neuroscientist, she was frustrated by the lack of education on the endocannabinoid system both doctors and scientists received, despite medical cannabis being used by millions of patients nationwide. In 2013, she founded the Endocannabinoid Deficiency Foundation, now known as Impact Network, with the mission to make medical cannabis treatment a first-line therapy for patients by educating patients, healthcare professionals, and policymakers, and driving clinical cannabis research. Dr. Ross, you're such a good guest for us. We love talking about uh, all of these stories from different folks who, uh, who are tethered to the cannabis industry in different ways. And um, we're really interested in, in in the impact network and how you came to uh, bring so much energy to it. So welcome, Dr. Ross. Um, tell us a little bit about you. Well, thank you so much for having me today on the Cannabis Corner. You know, it's uh, I sort of uh, fill a very different niche, you know, in the cannabis industry. You usually have patients, you have um, you know, doctors that uh, recommend medical marijuana or you have researchers, but you very rarely have researchers that are also very vocal patients and advocates. Mm-hmm. And I think um, it's sort of um, a lot of things happened to me in my life. Like I had a lot of health issues mm-hmm. um, and traditional medicine did not serve me at, at all. So I have nerve issues. Like at one point um, in my life, I had a hand and an arm that just like, I woke up and it just stopped working. And like literally, imagine what age right were you? What stopped. age were you? Like, so I was um, around 29, 30 okay. um, when that happened and uh, literally had no idea. <laughs> I went to the best doctors. I lived in Los Angeles at the time. So I go to Beverly Hill, like Dr. 90210. And I'm <laughs> like, Hey, why doesn't my arm work? <laughs> what can we do? And they're like, surgery you need a thirty thousand dollars surgery we're gonna cut this nerve in your neck and then reattach it to your arm and then you have a 50 percent chance of your whole arm not working oh my <laughs> gosh like, what? so what yeah, year what year like, this is this this is, this is going to give your age but what year are you 29 and the doctor says that <laughs> you know, um trying to go back um this was like right at the end of 2011 it was like december i think and i might be off it was yeah, I think it was 2011. Okay, yeah, that, I, I met my husband the year just to give us yeah. it's it's perspective on on a, a physician, yeah. you know, meeting with a physician. So the the yeah. year is kind of important. He says surgery is the first thing. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, surgery exactly. Um, and I'm going. Okay, one, this is going to be really expensive, mm-hmm. and two, this is not what I want to do. Um, and you know, I I hate surgery. Uh, <laughs> literally, the only surgery I've had uh, was a. Uh, a cosmetic one, and then I try to avoid surgery at all costs. And so I went and tried to figure out, okay, if your nerve is dead, I'm a neuroscientist, right? Mm-hmm. You know, what can I do to wake it up? And so I tried all these different, um, like, Chinese herbs and acupuncture. And it's just funny because I knew about cannabis. I didn't even researched it, but it was just something where it was not for me. Like, that was actually, like, I don't know whether it was my dear program 
or not, but it was still like, well, it's for sick people. Cause I still hadn't, you know, I wasn't consulting patients or anything at this time. Like mm-hmm. literally I was just a scientist that studied all these different drugs right. and I started using uh, cannabis cream. I started eating it and I didn't really like eating it at the time because I was a newbie and I was like, Oh, I'm busy and paranoid and weird. But the cream, um, combined with a massage therapy started to wake up my nerves and I started to feel things in my pinky. And then after about a week of using um, the cream and then combined with like a four hour massage in this one part of my arm that apparently was the nerve was like compressed or something, mm-hmm. my hand woke up and okay. I go to my doctor and they're like, well, you still need the surgery. And I was like, nope, my hand works. And oh they were really mad. They were mad. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was just sort of funny. Here I am like, okay, I could have had this $30,000 surgery or I have this weed cream. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just like, there's something here. Um, right. And uh, that was really cool. Um, and, you know, I'm trying to figure out, you know, why does this work? Um, you know, because I wasn't really trained in school on, you know, how topicals work, how anything uh, works. So I had to do a lot of, um, you know, self-teaching. And then I ended up meeting my husband who actually... Uh, was in the cannabis industry. So he had been a grower. Um, he had his own uh, delivery service uh, for a time, an edible company. Um, and, uh, you know, talking with him, he was like, well, you know all this stuff scientifically. I know all this stuff in the actual industry. Let's provide our knowledge um, and actually start helping patients. Because, you know, back in the day, like we're talking about like 2012, 2013, California was still very much a mess in yes. terms of products for medical patients. Like now it, it looks very grown up and mature and there's right. all these you know, sophisticated packaging and like targeted cannabinoid ratios. But like back in the day, like people were packaging like cupcakes in the back of their garage. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of trouble. There was a lot of trouble before things got glor- glorious, in a sense. Um, and yeah. over the years, that little pocket there, 11, 12, 13, there was sort of a recoil mm-hmm. before the, the, the tidal wave. Okay, so you met your yeah. husband and you're both, you're both of the same <laughs> mi- mindset and you wanted to yeah. help, you wanted to help people. And, and is that, and then yeah. what happened? Yeah. Yeah, so he taught me a lot about, you know, how to make different products, um, what some of them are used for, um, and then we just started, you know, um, making things that work for people. Um, I started doing consultations, and then I started writing this book uh, because I was so inspired by what had happened to me um, and uh, the changes that I started seeing in other patients. You know, even patients that were just using this for anxiety or for depression or for very simple things because, you know, again, back in the day, like when you first start, like even though you have a PhD, you don't feel super confident, you know? Right. And you're like, cool, I'm going to go completely from I studied drug addiction to be like treating cancer patients. That's not your first foray. So, right. you know, I, I started picking up experience over the years. But um, we decided to found... Um, Impact Network um, under the, the previous name, um, and I started writing actually the first articles in the, like the whole internet. And this sounds so crazy because now when you look at the internet, you know you type in any topic, you know lupus and cannabis, and you'll find like eight thousand articles. But back mm-hmm. in the day, there was nothing, and so. I had access to all the, the scientific research, and I never <laughs> was reading anyone's blogs or anything. I even haven't even, to this day, read another cannabis book. Like, my cannabis book is based directly on my, my uh, research, my patient consultations, and, like, the primary scientific journals. I haven't been like, oh, I read this blog, and this, <laughs> this right. book is based on is, is vita- because there are books like that. Is the book, <laughs> and maybe, maybe the articles that you're talking about that came sort of mm-hmm. before the wave of so many articles, mm-hmm. um, 
did the, did they all feed into this book, Vitamin Weed: A Four Step Plan to Prevent and Reverse Endocannabinoid Deficiency? Yeah. So, you know, it's sort of funny. So this book has actually been a long time in the making. I started it in 2013 mm-hmm. and I got raided by the Los Angeles police. Oh, you got raided. In my home while I'm writing a book. Oh my God. Yes. I got raided when we're talking about, you know, the early days of cannabis and how there's mm-hmm. no protections for patients. Um, mm-hmm. When you actually had a medical marijuana card, um, they could still arrest you in your home for having cannabis. <laughs> so but but you somebody got got out of jail card. Somebody sort of snitched on you, right? Right, doctor? Somebody I, snitched I, on you. I have no idea. You okay. know, you can, you can play a lot of games. Um, I wasn't doing anything illegal. I was just a patient. Um, no, I, so, I, uh, yeah, so it, it, it was an unfortunate thing. But I developed PTSD, and I also had, you know, those underlying health problems. They got really bad for a while. So it took a while to be my case. We ended up moving to Denver um, just because it was safer. Uh, when, you're, when you're a lab math like me and you're using your social media presence to, like, attack the police and corruption and stuff, not a good idea to be there where they can still arrest you. So, uh, so we left. Do you feel more comfortable? Uh, and, you know, do you feel more comfortable in today's environment than you did, as you say, back in the day? Okay, so um, you know, it took me a long time to feel comfortable. I would even travel back to like Los Angeles for teaching engagements or other things, and I would still have that PTSD crop up. You know, even though cannabis is very effective at treating it, there was still this like un- discomfort and. When recreational cannabis passed in uh, in California, there was just like this huge sense of relief because literally the police cannot bother you, <laughs> like unless you're doing something ridiculous, <laughs> like you're out there, you know, with like five pounds of weed, like on the street or something. Like no one is going to bother you, right? Um, because it is illegal to possess, um, even if you don't have a card or you know, whatever your business is. Um, and I just felt like. It was safe. And it's the same feeling I have in Colorado because we also have recreational cannabis here. Like, I had um, a medical emergency happen here in Denver, and I had uh, police and like EMTs come, and you know, it's like, here's my bong, my weed, uh, you know, on, on the table, and no one cares because it's legal. Right. And so there is a freedom with it being legal. And so um, I love Los Angeles. I love California. I lived there for five years before I um, moved to Denver because of PTSD and fear of. Uh, of uh, being arrested um, just for, for being my loud mouth. Um, so I actually made the decision, um, you know, basically once once California became legal, I wanted to move back, so I'm actually moving back at the end of the next month. So I'll you'd be been, another um, uh, Cali girl. <laughs> right. Um, you'd been talking about the book and the articles and how that all came together for you. Um, did that yeah. come to fruition after you got to Denver? Yeah, um, so I um, I had a lot of health problems that I didn't touch on on just all of them. So I had the arm problems and I got fixed. But um, after I got PTSD, like right, you know that the mind and body is pretty pretty well linked, and uh, my mind was not in the right space after that. And also, I had a I lived in an apartment with lead poisoning, so I ended up with all these weird health problems that people weren't really sure what they were until it was identified that it was actually lead and black hole poisoning. So I ended up with blood clots in my legs and lungs. Like I was like on death's door. Um, I like. Um, uh, the day after Christmas in 2014, I literally almost died. I had a 30% chance of living. Like, doctors were like, call everyone you know. Like, you're probably not going to make it through the night. Oh, like, it was really bad. Yeah. I ended up with um, some, some brain injury. Um, I was in a wheelchair. Um, 
oxygen tank. It took me about a year to like recover and be able to walk without like any assistance or canes or walkers or anything. So it's just sort of funny. It's like this book, like I actually never thought I would complete it just because I had so many hurdles that happened to me. And Mm -hmm. it's really hard to say as a neuroscientist who's supportive of cannabis. Well, um, and I wasn't using cannabis at the time that I got sick actually, because I was on, um, public health care and the doctors here in Colorado are not supportive of you being on Medicaid and on cannabis. They sort of want you to choose one or the other mm-hmm. uh, because it's, you know, federal funding and all that. Um, and so it wasn't like cannabis is what caused me to be sick, but there's some people that could extrapolate that. So I actually was not on cannabis for the four months before I ended up with like blood pots and all these other um, horrible health problems. And so um, I actually skewed the whole medical health care system um, and dosed myself with Rick Simpson oil, a whole bunch of other things. And that's actually how I got out of wheelchair and everything else like that, which mm-hmm. is, you know, my doctors did not want to hear that. They were like, you're disabled for life. Just get used to it. Go see a psychiatrist. You know, your doctors in Colorado, your doctors in Colorado were not interested in seeing you on a cannabis regimen at all. No, they wanted to, they literally were like, here, you have fibromyalgia now. Have lyrica. Here's MS tonin, which is morphine. Like literally I was dosed on morphine and I had to get myself off of that, which was a whole nother thing. So it's very interesting as somebody who is trained in addiction, like I'm like, I was researching the, the neurocircuitry of drug addiction before all these things happened. And then here I am on morphine and going through the withdrawal process of waking up in sweats and going, Oh my God, I need my morphine pill. Like, I'm yeah. like, this is not living. This is not life. And yeah. I need to get out of this stuff immediately, get back on cannabis. And, um, you know, that perspective of being a patient and I wasn't a patient that was abusing pills. I was a patient just using the dosage of medication that my doctor had prescribed me, but the doctor had never even told me that you know that there is a withdrawal process even like daily right and you become dependent on it right it's like i knew these things but it's very different when it plays out in yourself right Um, and so that perspective really gives me the passion to go and, and you know talk across the world um about uh how we shouldn't be putting patients on opiates in the first place and how we can get patients off of opiates because i went through it i mean it's opiate withdrawal is nasty and anyone that thinks people are weak-willed or you know or that this opiate crisis is because people want to be on drugs is is, has no idea um and it's so easy to become a sick patient you have no idea you could be in a car accident you know (laughs) your back something happens i mean we're all vulnerable becoming opiate addicts if our doctor prescribes it to us and so our doctor's responsibility to do something else go ahead adam what what did you do to help uh wean yourself off of the morphine yeah so i had a whole bunch of tools in my toolbox from uh different friends that i've had over the years and i actually had one grower is funny because this is quasi illegal but um, i had a uh Rick Simpson oil that I had obtained from um, a good friend in in Oregon um, that was clean because I have had actually Rick Simpson oil that has solvents or or something left in it that would make me sick. Like I had four different ones and like three of them made me sick. And this was the only one that didn't make me sick. Um, And I used that. And basically it was like, I, I joke about it being like, putting me in a cannabis coma, but I have no tolerance for THC still to this day. I still can use very low doses and it works for me. So I would get really sleepy and, you know, just knock me out. But I was, when I was really sick, it wasn't like I was doing much anyways. I was in pain. <laughs> so, so I would take my Rick Simpson oil, go to sleep, wake up, take some more. Um, and 
uh, basically I did that for about a month and a half. Um, and I started regaining a lot of, um, my function in my legs. And then I started like pushing myself to start, you know, like doing that rehab, like, okay, let's walk on my walker. Let's do this. Let's try to bend over, you know, and, and try to get back into, um, the shape that I was. But, uh, but, uh, in terms of getting off the opiates, yeah, it was rich simpson oil, that Tell us what was that is. Very helpful. I tried. Yeah, rich simpson oil is actually um, uh, it's, it's also called uh, fecal oil or full extracts cannabis oil, and what it is is really concentrated mm-hmm. THC. Yeah. Um, so you can literally take like a speck of it. it looks like you know, like a grain of rice or something. It's not like you're taking drops or anything like that. Like you literally take a little bit, and um, it's the same as like taking like a huge edible or something like that. Um, and so you're supposed to take, um, you know, several grams of this over a month, depending on what your, your disease is. Like cancer patients might take more than they, um, what I took. Um, but I just took anything I could get at that time because, you know, I, I couldn't work. So it was very hard. And then, um, you know, a lot of patients are in this situation when they're sick, they're not on health care. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, you take whatever is donated to you. So I had, um, I had my Rexxon oil. I also use CBD too. Um, cause I had a lot of anxiety, um, and depression. And that was, that was a really hard part for me too, because again, neuroscientists working in mental health and I'm here. I am I'm like, I so depressed that I can't work. I can't really think, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm in pain all the time. And, I wasn't really expecting that. And, the, you know, while the THC was helping, like, you know, sort of uh, heal my nerves and, and get me back functionally, I do think that CBD was really helpful in, in helping the mental aspects for me. And we'll have more with our interview with Dr. Michelle Ross in a future episode of The Cannabis Corner. Now more of our interview with Gooey Rabinsky. I have a question for, for Gooey about, because uh, you've, you've written some interesting stuff about terpenes. Mm. I'd like for you to share with us maybe just kind of a snippet of what you've learned and, you know, how certain terpenes are good for helping certain ailments or or anything of that nature. Yeah, in fact, I've got a little social media campaign, uh, Terpene Tuesday, where I push out a bunch of terpene articles that I've written uh, over the past couple of years on Tuesday and, you know, Everybody gets a chuckle. How do you define a terpene? This is a word that's finding its way into the households, whereas the endocannabinoid system is just now finding its way into people's knowledge. How do you approach describing terpenes? Well, just a few years ago, nobody knew what the heck a terpene was. Right. There's cannabis, and then there's this thing called THC inside of it. Oh, and then we find there's another thing called CBD, you know, the cannabinoid. But the terpenes uh, were just for aroma. It's like, wow, why does it have that amazing aroma? Yeah. Oh, that's because of the terpenes. Okay. And what's interesting is, you know, it's not like I've written 60 terpene articles, but uh, I've done more than 20. Okay. And we see patterns. So back to the original question, mm-hmm. each terpene is a little different. It's kind of like THC and CBD. The cannabinoids, they overlap in a lot of their efficacy. They have a lot of the same benefits. Mm-hmm. Yet there are some striking differences, uh, you know, also psychoactivity being one of them. But as a group, the majority of terpenes offer three different types of efficacy. They're anti-cancer, they're anti-systemic inflammation, and they're painkillers, they're analgesic. Now, not 100% of them do that or do that really well. And we have to be very careful when we say things like that because we also have this entourage effect where we understand that when certain cannabinoids and certain terpenes are present, they create an interplay where, in theory, their benefit is the sum is greater than 
in the parts, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, they, and some of them might be uh, like messengers or conduits and saying, hey, hop on my back and I'll take you to the receptor site and then you can go do your thing. Mm-hmm. And without that dynamic, there might not be the medical efficacy. Now, here's where it gets really complicated. Okay. Now we've got subjective efficacy. So right. the eight-year-old woman from Connecticut versus, you know, the eight-year-old kid from Florida with epilepsy, yeah, they different conditions require not only very different mixes of terpenes and cannabinoids for optimal treatment, but also dosing. You know, this is where the whole education thing comes into it. Uh, obviously, I'm not really intending necessarily to educate doctors and medical professionals, but I want the consumers of these products to know that they've got an option other than opioids. I think it's okay and if you educate everybody, Gooey. I think the, phys- <laughs> I think the physicians should be listening to you. And I know you do too. Maybe, you know, I'm sure there's room for everybody to learn. Uh, I think that the key is that we have a complicated scientific element here and we're trying to reach the masses. So it's language is a big deal. I mean, we've been talking about it in different ways, how you approach uh, a, a person uh, in an education way. Um, you're a writer. I'm a writer. I think the language and and being succinct is, is really key in the now. Don't you agree? I would totally agree with you. Yeah. Like I've, I've written tons of, of articles that were more than 2,000 words. And guess what? That's mm. too much. Yeah. It's, it's, it's too big. Now, it's nice to have a few of those research projects, especially if you're tackling a very large topic where there's lots of research to be done, like cannabis for cancer. You know, that's not a 300-word article. You can do it that way, but you're not really getting into the into the meat of the issue. But I, I totally agree with you. I, I think the information should be chunked up. So, you know, instead of a single 3,000-word article, maybe you've got 10, 300-word articles that are carefully positioned to build on each other's knowledge. And, you know, it doesn't have to get too complicated, but yeah, make it bite-sized so people can pair it off. Give them audio. That's why I love these podcasts. Right. Endurance, you know, people out running down the street here in L.A., you know, they, they've got their headphones on and they're listening to something. It might not be a podcast, it might be music, but they could be educating themselves about terpenes running down the street or, or when they're on their bike. Everybody's got a work commute, you know. We spend too much time in our cars uh, blocked in traffic. We need to push out information uh, educational information about cannabis via audio and video podcasts because not everybody wants to read regardless of length. Yeah, it's uh, hard to predict on on how people approach reading and and knowledge, but there is this notion that in today's world, if you're listen, if you have headphones on, it's not necessarily music. It's sort of the evolution of the TED Talk where people started to say, "Oh, I loved this." Or there's scholars online and filmmakers like Scorsese giving lessons. That's that, that's a fascinating and very telling of our of our culture now. Adam and I would would in the eighties would only have Led Zeppelin on our headphones, and uh, there wasn't the option of hey, guess what? You can learn about this herb, the, this ancient herb. Gooey, it says here that uh, you are on Twitter and Instagram. Is that true? Yeah, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook. I think that's the extent of it. If people had a question for you, would it be okay to write you? And since you sound like an expert to us. Yeah, yeah. I encourage people to uh, comment on the post because then you can kind of share, you know, if you have an inquiry, 
about like a lot of people hit me up about CBD, for example, a lot of confusion there. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, don't make it benefit just you. Yeah. Comment publicly so others can benefit from that information. One of the things I like about social media is, you know, you get input from people around the world, not right. just uh, North America. But, you know, a lot of times based on where the industry is, it's very California centric. It's very Denver centric. Mm-hmm. It's Seattle centric, you know, and, and it's nice to hear the voices of people in the less enlightened states like Alabama and Florida and such. You ever thought about trying to get into the actual medical magazines, the medical journals? I imagine that's pretty fraternal as well. No, I, I have not. In fact, I was just wanting to write for something a little more serious than the High Times and and such. Quite honestly, I, you know, something that's more medical centric. Yeah, I found some of the the web based stuff has. You know, I've written for some nice outlets. Uh, and a, one of the publications, it's unfortunate they have a relatively uh, small distribution in California is Emerald Magazine. Mm-hmm. I always liked the balance that Emerald Magazine achieved in, in terms of talking about the culture and like infused dinners and they would cover nice events, but they would also uh, do interviews with, you know, amazing people in the industry, including medical professionals. Or they might have a feature on uh, glass. I did one on a glass gallery for them in Humboldt County. Right. You know, obviously there's no hard medical science there, right? We're just showing beautiful art. You know, so there's some publications out there doing that. But can someone just walk into, uh, you know, Barnes and Noble in Connecticut and pick up a copy of that magazine? No. So one of the problems we're facing is kind of limited distribution. And I know on the internet, you know, everything is theoretically unlimited availability, but there's so many voices on the internet, your message gets drowned out very easily. Yeah, it's hard to pull a message from all of that, I think. Um, there's, it's kind of cacophonous. Adam, from your perspective, do you know of uh, the medical journals that are publishing articles on the endocannabinoid system? Uh, Okay, so some some writer, maybe you, Gooey, should fire off an article to the powers that be. You know, even your rejection letter would be a story. I wonder where this information is uh, as it pertains to medical school and um, the current journals. My thought is that somebody has done that, but I'm not positive. We'll have to look into it. The, The only thing that I've seen in medical journals are some studies. You know. Sounds like there's a lot of room there for some truth to be written, but perhaps there's a pushback on it. It's hard to know. I would imagine so. Yeah. I think the problem is that we just don't... I've been seeing articles popping up through my social media feeds about how countries other than the U.S. are gaining a lead in terms of research uh, infrastructure and just you know everything. Yeah, allowing the specifics uh, to come into the medical profession at the highest level. Right. And as long as we've got Schedule 1 here in the States, I think the United States is brimming over with hungry researchers who are tired of the same old research, quite frankly. But, you know, I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist or anything, but, you know, the reality is there's a lot of funding of these research facilities within universities and colleges uh, from the pharmaceutical industry through grants and such. Then if money comes from the federal government... Schedule one, so that puts a big lock on the research. But I think there's a lot of research that wants to be done here in the U.S. Because when you start talking about, okay, this kid was having 400 seizures a day, and now he's having two a month. Yeah. You don't have to be into the teaching sound culture. You don't have to have any right. adoration of this plant 
whatsoever to say, holy shit, that's amazing. Yeah. We took a Hippocratic oath as medical professionals. If we don't try to learn more about that to help people, that's really kind of an evil thing. I agree. And the funny thing is, is when I've said stuff like that to certain doctors, I still get right back, oh, that's just anecdotal evidence. That's some pretty damn good anecdotal evidence. And I mean, when you see it time and time again, how can you not give that credence? So, and you know, they're, they're doing so much more in Israel um, and it is uh-huh. in hospitals and there are actual doctors and medical professionals administering cannabis in different forms. You know, we're just yep. way behind. Right. And it's so sad and so pathetic because the United States has such an amazing medical infrastructure, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Uh, it's messed up in a whole lot of ways, but I mean, we've got some amazing laboratories. We've got some really brilliant researchers and doctors, and their hands are tied right now because of Schedule One and the fact that you know the majority of these institutions do receive uh, federal funding, you know, directly or indirectly in some way, shape, or form. And it's like that. Suddenly, we can't we can't do that clinical research study on CBD because you know there's just tons of red tape roadblocks when, you know, the DEA and the FDA and Schedule 1 get involved. Yeah, I guess in one sense, we should be grateful for the evolution as as we sit here with so much access and so much of a lifted stigma. And there's a sense that as 10 years goes by, we'll look at ourselves and, and see real progress. I know that cannabis as medicine is, is being used in a hospital in Manhattan, but I was also told that I'd be better off going to a dispensary than using the cannabis that has been administered to the uh, medical profession there. So that is a great example of where the red tape is tainting the product. I guess we should be grateful that the product in its purest form is available, but nobody wants to go to jail. No physician wants to call his mom and say, I lost my license because I decided to prescribe CBD. I'm a good guy. I saw that it was working, but I lost my license, and they want to throw me in the pokey. Yeah, uh, and now and now my kid got to drop out of college because I can't pay tuition. Yeah, and nightmares, I'm, nightmares. I'm really, I'm really glad that you guys take that kind of realistic, kind of centrist perspective because just attacking the people who, on the surface, seem to oppose cannabis as medicine or, or the cannabis industry, I, I think it's very short-sighted. You yeah. know, it, I tell my kids all the time, it's not black or white, it's a thousand shades of gray. And, you know, yes, there's good people and bad people, but most of us are just kind of in between. But we all have some sort of an agenda and we all have certain resources. We also have certain hindrances. And I I feel sorry for those doctors in a way because, like you say, I I mean, hey, they don't want to lose their practice. They should be allowed to incorporate it. And I think time will tell. So frustrating and also exciting. Um, We're going to wrap up here. Gooey Rabinsky, you're such a great guest, and we'd love to have you back. And thanks for existing. And try to write an article that disarms the medical profession, that has to sit in the best of the journals to say, this is what's inside of us. And I think they're beginning to listen. But again, there's fear there. And money is power, and, and jail is really power. So yeah, yeah, really, that's true. Well, thanks for having me, guys. I'd love to come on in the future because, like I said, I like your balanced, realistic approach. You know, I love the passion of zealots. 
But on the strategy and execution side, it doesn't typically work. I know just what you're saying. We're, we don't have the Jack Herrera monologue going anymore. It's more, hey, Nebraska, why don't you come on board? We won't embarrass you. This is going to be amazing right, for right. you in so many ways. Guess what? We're, we're good guys. You're welcome. We, you know, we're not going to say we told you, you offer so. tax revenues. You <laughs> offer tax revenues, and who doesn't like tax revenues? Right. It was just announced, I think, today, and I think we talked about this, I want to say, around this time last year, Josh. This year, Pueblo County has sent 600 kids on full rides, full scholarships to college, all from cannabis money. Oh, that's incredible. Revenue. That's incredible. And 600 kids from little Pueblo County. It's not a big place. Your county can have that, too. That's very big exactly. deal. Exactly. That's a very that's, big deal. And that's why, yeah, we got to get the word out about those. Those are wonderful case studies. Yeah. And they're case studies that should be examined by, by other states, other jurisdictions, and say, hey, we can maybe fix some problems in our community. You're going to send some human beings to college that might not have gone. Think about it. Right, and uh, for the opioid ep- epidemic at the same time. Hey, well, there's tomorrow to see how this all unfolds. Thanks again, Gooey Rabinsky. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Josh. Yeah, thanks, Gooey. Hey, thanks for listening. Farmer Adam and I are so glad to be a part of your cannabis education. We'll see you next time on The Cannabis Corner. Mm-hmm.